0: Talked about this before off of the podcast, but do you have any memories of the '94 strike?
1: Yeah, a little. Um, I I, I mean, I I was very into baseball that year. It was uh, one of the best years, you know. Like it it really—it was a historically awesome year. Um, But the main thing I remember is being like thinking the Cubs were—I think—not as bad as they had
2: been. Oh, they were awful. They were, they, they were all? All.
1: Okay, maybe yeah. I'm all right so maybe now that's, then, a, no. that,
2: that's an obvious shirt right there not as bad as we have been <laughs> right it <laughs>
0: should uh, be the chief morgan honestly
2: right
1: so maybe that's it cuz i don't remember being terribly heartbroken I, I don't remember being like destroyed when the season closed off i remember being pissed off about it and i remember arguing with my grandfather that it was the owner's fault when he was uh, more both sidesing it with the players um so at least at least my you know uh labor versus ownership politics were good when i was 12 but um sophisticated
0: for an eighth grader at that point
1: yeah but um yeah not not a lot besides all the all the fun stat chases i just remember you know there was a lot of fun stat chases that year
0: that i remember being into yeah Yeah. uh... And Adam, you said that so I remember this is before you were really a baseball fan, right? Ninety-four. Yeah,
2: I was. I was completely disconnected from it. Um, I was seven, and my entire life revolved around the Chicago Bulls. So, uh, also kind of a disappointing year for the Bulls, but in some ways a uh, impressive right. non, non-Jordan year where they made it a game away from the finals. Um, but yeah, I I had no my knowledge of the ninety-four strike is all like in years later. Like reading about it.
0: Yeah, because I I have a few distinct memories of of the strike and and that particular moment. That was, I think, my sophomore year in high school. And as as you mentioned, coming off of the first Bulls three peaks, like every kid my age was first and foremost obsessed with the Bulls and the NBA. And I was, it, it felt like at that age, like I was, you know, the only 15 year old baseball fan left. Essentially, like yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would be I am legend of MLB fans just just wandering an empty, empty ballpark. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so it, it felt like not only is it, you know, apparently painfully obvious to a high school kid at the time that baseball is losing the popularity battle with basketball and with football and with all the cooler sports. And now baseball has shot itself in the dick by cutting off a season and, and, and canceling a World Series. And I remember like the day, the night Bud Sealy went out and just uh, made it official that there was no World Series and just feeling like so bad about that, that I felt I have to do something. And so I, at 15 years old, decided, okay, I'll, I'm going to put in Field of Dreams in my VCR. <laughs> and by the end, I, I was sobbing like a housewife at the end of Bridges of Madison County.
1: <laughs> i mean this is it's great because i feel like this version of you can uh really it takes i think it takes the nature side and nature versus nurture because it's like you were always fully ken that is like <laughs> that, 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 was, that is just such an entirely you sequence of events and feelings <laughs> and actions
0: uh be happening that long ago that's great yeah uh I, I like to think that, in, in terms of that, even though there's probably some nature that programmed my DNA that way, that I have evolved beyond Kevin Costner movies at this point, at least, <laughs> in, in taking the next emotional step. But, uh, but I, I, like,
2: I like to imagine that every time you you hold up the Field of Dreams DVD or whatever you watch it on, in your head you hear somebody whispering, "If you watch it, you will cry." <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think now I've I've moved beyond uh, Field of Dreams to now. Uh, Love Simon is the movie that makes me cry. So, yeah, I, okay. I've gone from adult baseball movies to yeah, high school twelve-year-old gay movies. So you know that's. But I th- I think moving to anything but a baseball
1: movie is actually that is yeah. like maturity. I think yeah. you know.
0: I, I might finally be reaching my gay puberty at forty-one years old. So <laughs> that, that's a step okay. in the right direction. That's exciting. Yeah. Puberty uh, two.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh God! And and that reminds me that anytime and, and you, I think Adam, you met, noticed this on previous podcasts that anytime someone tells a joke or mentions something that ends in the word two, my go-to reference is Electric Boogaloo, and uh, that's no more. That's done. I know. Yeah. Turns out that's yeah. like a that's like a white power thing now, isn't yeah. it? Yes. God damn it! it. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the alt right has decided that Boogaloo is code word for the second civil war. Uh, because it's a sequel name or something, but yeah. So my, my go-to favorite obscure stupid 80s reference is now the most racist thing you can possibly say. So, uh, and you know, (laughs) if that's the worst thing that happens of this particular moment, honestly, then yeah, I guess I'll sacrifice it. But, uh,
1: Well, you know how, how the the thing about like you give a you know infinite monkeys, infinite typewriters, or whatever, and the one of them's going to write Shakespeare. <laughs> like you know, I'm butchering I'm butchering the phrase, but it's like as we go on in 2020, it's just like oh, everything's going to be racist. <laughs> like, every, we're just, like eventually, with enough time, America will make everything racist. We got a fucking breakdance movie to represent Civil War II. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do some serious heavy lifting to get there, but fuck it. I believe in us. And we know, you know, we did it.
0: It's it is uh, the dumbest and yet the most dangerous timeline for, for yeah. all that. Uh, but the reason why I wanted to start the podcast by asking that is when we had when I pitched this to you guys last week, the idea was that we'd be reliving, you know, the 90s because it would be the Sammy Sosa documentary that ESPN aired on Sunday. And uh, then it turns out, after what Rob Manford had to say on Monday, we're reliving the 90s because we might not have a season.
2: So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, much, we- much like we relive the 90s in the Sosa documentary with loads of B roll from current times, we will also <laughs> relive the 90s strike with B roll from the current times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, if we're going to relive the 90s, shouldn't we be having like Michael Ian Black making sardonic comments in between everything <laughs> we say about baseball? Ah shit! That would
1: be. I, it would be nice for me to get another job, uh, to <laughs> <laughs> do, 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 do stuff like that. Get on another. I love this show. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I. Uh, yeah, I, I. I guess it's it. It it is very annoying to see, and we. I mean, we see it in like bigger, more serious historical ways too. But just to be repeating shit that we should know is bad. You know, like everyone should know is is bad. Like you shouldn't not do a season. Um, the fact that we're hearing, you know, six to eight or possibly more owners just flat out don't want a baseball season. Uh, I was saying on, on Twitter, this, but like you, if you're a baseball owner who flat doesn't want a season to happen, you should have to go on record saying that, uh, explaining why, and you should be forced to sell your team. If you, if you are a baseball owner who doesn't want a baseball season, you should not own a baseball team. That doesn't feel radical to me to say.
2: Yeah. No, and um, it's, it's to me, it's almost like, you know, how when you fill out like customs forms at the airport, the first question is like, are you a terrorist? And you're like, who the fuck is saying, yes, I'm a terrorist? Like, I feel like <laughs> right. if you want to be the commissioner of baseball, the first question on whatever you fill out should be, do you like baseball? And if the answer <laughs> is no, then you just don't get to have that job.
1: Yeah. Do you yeah. want baseball to happen all, all, all <laughs> of the years? <laughs> you should want to bet. Batting <laughs> under a thousand on baseball happening is a fail. Like, it yeah. is it is not a D-minus. That's a fail. Go to baseball hell forever. Like, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's maddening to the point of, there's so much to say about it, it feels like there's nothing to say. Yeah.
2: And by Go the way, to baseball, baseball, hell. baseball hell forever is just Marlins Park, I assume, or? I, I <laughs> yeah. was about to
0: make that exact same joke. Uh, <laughs> I love you, Ken. Uh, what there does is
2: my... <laughs> more that Rob
0: Madford deserves more than a lifetime in Miami. In Miami, Hey.
2: Yeah. Uh, okay.
0: I, I started my punchline. So, yeah, oh, since I didn't I it up, I'll bit. you the Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me do the quick show open, and we'll jump right, right. back into this here. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, the Outsports baseball podcast, part of the Outsports podcast network, episode number 31, the Fergie Jenkins slash Greg Maddox episode oh, really? of Three Strikes You're Out. Because if the Cubs can retire on both, they can both be represented on this particular one. My name is Ken Schultz. I am contributing writer to Outsports, Baseball Prospectus and Cubs Den. Also, stand-up comedian, which at this point is pretty much like saying, I am a baseball player, because it's about <laughs> as relevant as that. Uh, the other two voices you are hearing, and you should be very familiar if you listen to this podcast for any length of time, because they define Friends of the Pod. Kevin McCaffrey, Adam Mamawala, co-host of the Away Games podcast, joining me for, uh, let's say, the 20th time on, uh, sure. of my third episodes. Why not? You are the sure. John Goodman, Tom Hanks of my particular podcast here.
1: I mean, these are great. These are great comps. These are, you know, we're just after the baseball draft. And I know people sometimes people get sensitive about putting player comps on people. But I will take a John Goodman or Tom Hanks uh, <laughs> comp. That is, that yes. works I,
2: and, and let us know if we turn into uh, Jeff Garland in the uh, in the press box. And we've worn out our welcome.
1: <laughs>
0: yes. I, I think you'll know if, if you become Jeff Garland if you feel the need to add or to end everything you say by going, Seattle, someone, ha, 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 ha. Uh, God.
1: it is. Uh, yeah. It's a am- It's amazing that on a show where he just plays a loud asshole, it's like, that is the most refined version of him humanly <laughs> possible. Like he's the only, he's the only person on curb your enthusiasm. That is more tolerable on curb your enthusiasm than he is in real life. Uh, anyway, great stuff.
0: Good Cubs fan. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, if you ever want to have any of us on the show, we take it in a heartbeat. But, sure. Yeah, the only way to make Jeff Garland tolerable is to put him next to Larry David. I think it's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yes. yes. So, yeah, uh, I think what we were getting at right before we did the show open um, is the realization, kind of combining what you guys, both of what you guys just said. Is that we have not only a commissioner who clearly doesn't like baseball, and that's a hashtag that's been going around for several months now, but it's we're revealing that we have at least enough owners who don't like baseball that they could put a stop to the whole damn thing. Uh and it 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 feels like um it it, it immensely frustrating, uh obviously. Obviously it, it does. Um but More to the point, uh, and this is kind of something that I've been slowly realizing over the past couple weeks, pretty much ever since they started floating the idea of coming back from the pandemic, and the owners immediately took that as an excuse to go back in the agreement that they reached in March with the players. Um, As as a baseball fan, I have really for a long time wanted to see the sport really obviously push and market its stars and do what it can to get itself back up. Just just cut into the NFL's lead in terms of dominating the sporting scene in this country, and I kind of realized over the past couple of weeks that Major League Baseball, as we know it, is never going to come close to the NFL in popularity or market its players anywhere close to the way the NBA or the NFL does, as long as the union remains strong. And that feels like a criticism of the players, but it's not because. As long as the union remains the strongest one in sports, MLB owners, number one priority is always going to be trying to break the union and trying to Mm -hmm. instill some kind of salary cap or salary control on it. And they will never make the first priority, pushing the guys that they already have and trying to make them as popular as possible, because that gives them more power in leveraging negotiations with, with ownership. And it's incredibly heartbreaking and depressing to realize that, but but that's, that's kind of the, the really, outside of the obvious sad thoughts that have, we've been having over the past week or so, that, that's one that I can't quite get out of my head. Uh, the realization that that's, it, this is just kind of the way it's going to be And until we, we either get a commissioner or, or enough owners to say, snap the fuck out of this and take what you got and try to make it as, as you know, culturally relevant as you can.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's just it's, a, yeah. Go ahead. Adam. No, I was just gonna say it's you know it's deeply frustrating. Um, even reading stuff before what happened this week in terms of like, apparently the blackouts that we had heard so much about were going to continue even during a pandemic. Like there were gonna be places where forty or fifty percent of a certain city or you know greater Chicagoland area, LA, whatever, were not going to be able to watch games in a year that you're literally not even allowed to try to go to games. So hmm. when you have stuff like that, when you have MLB, you know, pulling every clip that somebody you know posts of a of a game, it's just I can't even speak they, clearly because I literally am so frustrated by the way that MLB does almost everything. That uh, it's none of this surprises me because this is everything's been building to this for as long as we've been watching baseball.
1: It's shame. They're shameless. They can't be guilted. Nothing matters but money. And you can't you can't win an argument you can't win an argument with them because you can't speak the same language as them. you can't make a point with them because they there there is nothing more obvious like if you if you're a, a an organization that is willing to keep those blackouts in place during a pandemic, as you say, that should be the easiest, most bipartisan, most like no downside. in fact, there is an upside, but they can't see it because all they do is count. The is, is count decimal points on what mm-hmm. they think they can make now and also in the future. You can't, there, it's a bunch of un, just completely guiltless, unshameable people running baseball. And I don't know why they have the worst owners. I don't know why, but they do. And mm-hmm. I'm sure it's something someone could take a deeper dive into. But there's a reason why when Mark Cuban was interested in buying the Cubs, no one wanted Mark Cuban in the league because I think they know Mark Cuban. Would like his baseball team to win. Likes having fun. Likes putting his players in front, uh, you know, in in front of the camera. And sure, he likes the camera on him too. But it's not. But uh, it's a little different than Steinbrennery, which, by the way, I don't think is close to the worst kind of ownership in baseball. Steinbrennery, because they pay money and try to win. Um, but uh, I, I think there's a reason why, when you think of owners who clearly. Want their team to win the most. That's their number one goal. You think I, the, the ones that come to mind for me are Mark Cuban, Steve Ballmer uh, of uh, mm. of the NBA. It's NBA guys, and there's and baseball owners specifically kept Mark Cuban out of the league, and there's a reason why. Um, yeah. Yeah. and Mark Cuban's not even good, but I'm just <laughs> but he's like but he's so much better than anyone in the major league baseball. Every owner sucks. Boo all
0: owners. All owners are bad. Uh, yeah, uh, and but add fuck billionaires, fuck capitalism.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Uh, yeah, it, it it should be in in obviously a much more idealized world, uh, which is the exact opposite of what we're living in in 2020. But in an, an idealized world, owners would realize exactly what they're buying into whenever they buy a major league baseball team. That you know that you are getting involved in a sport where you will end up paying the stars substantial salaries. But you will also be selling your team for at least a billion, if not a couple billion dollars, by the end of it. Mm-hmm. And so there I, I wish that there was some kind of mindset where you could as an owner be willing to make that trade-off of paying the players what they're worth because they generate this insane amount of money, knowing that in the end you as well will be cashing out at a level you couldn't even imagine when you first bought in. There might be something endemic to the mindset of anyone who gets a billion dollars at some point that you just can't allow yourself to Mm -hmm. share it with others or share what in your mind you think is too much of it with others, even though despite the fact that they are the actual business and the actual people that people actually pay to see.
2: Yeah.
0: It's It's, it's (laughs) like all yours.
2: Listening to to Kevin talk about Mark Cuban, I'm, I'm imagining a scenario where Cuban wants to be a baseball owner and has to go make his pitch a la Shark Tank to the other owners of baseball. <laughs> and it's just a very yeah. quick, uh, it seems to us that you want to treat players fairly, and for that reason, we're out. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's so, like, the, if, I'm, if I'm not wrong on these numbers, is it not true that the Ricketts bought the Cubs for $900 million? Yeah. I, I have a feeling they've appreciated as a franchise a little bit since then, and yeah. that doesn't mean that no credit goes to the Ricketts for hiring Epstein and doing some of the basic things that a smart person would do. But this whole we were complaining about it seemingly before everybody else in baseball was as Cubs fans. But this whole like crying poor nonsense is just it's such a bad look. And, you know, it's a bad look when we as baseball fans feel bad for millionaire baseball players (laughs) for how much they are being taken advantage of. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think part of that might be because that's been the playbook for as long as there have been owner-player battles, is that the owners, you have enough of them cry poor. I mean, that was essentially Bud Seelig's entire commissionership was complaining about how the Brewers couldn't afford to sign a Paul Molitor or the A's had to trade off all of their stars after three or four years. And just if you keep doing that after a while and and you have enough teams that participate in that, I guess they assume that it just kind of sinks into most fans that, yeah, a lot of owners are poor, and this is the way it's got to be until they break the union. And it's not going to be until we have enough fans that realize that this is all a long con and this is all the game that they want to play, they want you to to feel this, that I think anything is going to change. And we have a lot of smarter fans now that seem to to grasp this and a lot of smarter writers who are at least able to kind of push back against it. But until we show them definitively that it's not going to work, maybe this is just what it's going to be
1: yeah and it's and i do I have been a little bit pleasantly surprised about the writers who have been taking what I think we all believe is to be the right side in this and pointing out the hypocrisy of the owners and that uh sure, if you want to say it's not a hundred percent the owner's fault fault, okay, but it's more it's most of their fault. I mean when Buster Olney, who talks all the time about growing up uh, on a farm and now he doesn't, he, he doesn't farm much anymore, but he he's usually carrying the owner's water from one place to another. <laughs> when when Buster only is to, is understanding and saying publicly that it's more on the owners, the owners should know that they that they they've lost their last ally in in the media. Unless someone wants to be like an insane contrarian, which they'll always be, because there's always money in that, um, you know, supporting the powerful and working for access to to them and whatever. But uh. Yeah, it's it I think part of the problem too is just that it's it's boring to talk about money like this. That's not yeah. why anyone watches sports. And it's too much number crunching in in the non-fun statistical way to see how much of this is on the owners and how insane and inhumane uh that uh they're being, you know, for mm-hmm. for what is an extremely small percentage of the money that, yeah, it, that and, they will make.
2: And I've seen a lot of players tweeting uh something to the effect of like I'm embarrassed to be any part of this. Like for Mm -hmm. all of this to be playing out the way that it's playing out with the backdrop of a global pandemic where people, a lot of people don't have rent money and food money, not to mention extreme civil unrest. And this is what people are unable to figure out. Apparently it's a really, really bad look for a league that's already clearly third. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it, absolutely. It,
0: and I think what might lead to a sea change, hopefully, uh, is that right now you're seeing, as, as you said, a lot of players get it, or at least are giving you the sense that that they get it. And I can't think of a single owner that gives you anywhere close to that sense of you. They understand the all, all the problems going on right now, and and the relief, the bit of relief that they might be able to provide just by putting the game out there for a couple months. I mean, essentially, when you have the players all saying, "On Moss," at this point, tell us where and when, and the owners saying, "No, nah, we, we don't want to." You yeah. know who is the one holding it that holding it up and holding it back? Yeah, it but it's um, tough, so it's,
1: yeah. The but, only good thing Tony Clark has done, I think, is is being part of that messaging. Tell us when and where, because the players are taking the risk; they're willing to do it. You know, yeah,
0: yeah. And and this is also really the first time the players have pushed back on anything ownerships tried to force on them. That I can remember maybe in the past decade, so uh, so yeah, this is maybe we 're finally getting a sense that Tony Clark knows how to do that a little bit because this is the first time he's he 's felt like he 's had to, uh, but I wanted to go back to an earlier point you made too, and then we will legitimately move on to more fun topics because I also realize you don 't tune into a baseball podcast to hear labor for an hour either uh, but <laughs> your your question earlier about why. Baseball always has the worst owners. And this is another thought that I kind of had this week is that I think part of the reason why you can have a Cuban in other sports is because baseball owners also spend a lot of their time, even though their franchises are all worth at least a billion dollars, and they will all be immensely wealthier at the end of whenever they decide to, to sell them off and to, uh, whenever they get to the end of holding on to them. I think all baseball owners still look at what the NFL, the NBA and the NHL have in terms of salary caps and hard caps and, and cost control in all their players. And, and often, especially in the NFL's case, non-guaranteed contracts Yeah. and baseball owners look at what they have to deal with and think, I want that. Give me that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's, it, again, it's not going to be until they stop pursuing that at all costs that we're going to be able to have any kind of perception that, we have an owner who gets close to a Cuban and really, I think part of the reason why Cuban can be fun is because he knows that he doesn't have to devote an an open-ended amount of his budget to maintaining his roster that I I think that when owners have that salary cap, then sometimes they can seem more fun because they don't have to, uh, I guess, give into that part of their brain that, that says crush our labor at all costs. So unfortunately, uh, because the guys we root for in terms of all all our favorite baseball players have the most rights uh, paradoxically it makes our sport less popular and 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 makes it more prone to disputes like this but I'm not gonna stop rooting for the players just because I want ownership to be like more like Cuban uh, you know I, yeah. I'd like to ownership to just realize hey just acknowledge maybe the humanity of your employees a little bit more but I realize that's ridiculous to suggest in 2020 so anyway right rant over for me yeah well and also i just
1: looked it up but the dallas Mavericks salary for the year is 121 million uh which is above plenty of baseball teams even you know with half as many games hmm. uh and we, you know so we talk about like the salary cap and i think that is helpful but it's also like it's a lot of money that's more than the baseball teams are playing even if it's capped you know uh that's more than a lot of baseball teams yeah. are, are are paying at least. And there really is nothing more billionaire than to think you're being treated unfairly. So what, uh, so what, what you say about the baseball owners looking at other things and being like, but I want that. I mean, that's yeah. There's nothing more them
0: than that. Mm -hmm. So. um, Yeah. yeah. Uh, So do you want to talk about happier things at this point? Uh, Yeah. Uh, So uh, your first thoughts on long gone summer. The ESPN Sammy Sosa Mark McGuire documentary, and I'm one of the few who I guess is going to name Sammy Sosa first in that
2: particular pairing because he was
0: <laughs> on for what ten minutes, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, Adam, you go first. Um, I wa- so I watched it last night. I didn't uh, I didn't get a chance to watch it live on Sunday, and that also means that I kind of got to see all of the reviews or, or negative reviews on Twitter. Um, I enjoyed it. I didn't, you know, I didn't think it was bad. It was. I guess my main criticism would be that it didn't really give me a lot of information that I didn't already know. And uh, one, one thing that a lot of people were pointing out on Twitter, it really did take me out of it, the sheer amount of footage and like photography from the past couple of years that they used, especially because like for Wrigley, it's just that it's been updated. And if you're a fan, you know that that's not Wrigley in 1998, But the Cardinals were not even in the same stadium, so the fact that they kept doing that, Mm -hmm. like there was a there was a shot where they literally clearly cut to a game from last year where like one fan just weirdly had a Maguire jersey on, and I was like, (laughs) "There's no reason that you couldn't have access." (laughs) Like it was, it was a little frustrating. But put um... a fucking
1: Snapchat filter on the thing and make it look old at least. Even (laughs) like the difference between like the high def and the clarity of it's just it was like honestly. In terms of that sort of production, it was mm-hmm. like, "Ooh, this this was a pretty good college kid documentary." Like, right. this is—I mean, this will get you uh, a B plus A minus in, <laughs> T- in TCOM four thirty four at Ball State. Right? Like, <laughs> there's problems with it, but you know, pretty good try, college student. It's just it—it's amazing that there was such basic stuff like that that was done wrong. It didn't take me at like. I think also I watched it afterwards, so I, I knew that was coming uh, a little bit, so it took me out a bit less, maybe. But yeah, I thought that was I, goofy. I will
2: say though, in all of the weird editing, I don't know if you guys caught this, but there was a, a moment where during a transition, seemingly very much on purpose, they cut to like something that said Ferguson, and then they oh, yeah. showed a, a rainbow flag and a Black Lives Matter sign, and there wasn't really any context for it. But I kind of liked that they just threw that in. As a, did you notice that, Kevin? Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I, they they wanted to find the ones
0: black lives matter sign in all of St. Louis. So yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, Yeah, that was,
1: that was notable. Um, no, I missed that. I think one thing I did do with this was, um, I, I, I enjoyed it. It was a fun thing to have on, I would say. Uh, I think I enjoyed it more than the, uh, than the verdict of online. Uh, but, Uh, I found myself also like looking at other things. So I don't think I I don't think I visually I wasn't visually compelled for the full two hours. You know what I mean? Like I was listening to it. And then also uh, then I went to do something online for a minute. So I was I was in and out. It was more background than like the last dance, for instance. I was Uh compelled to watch it and only watch it.
2: Right. And I think that's that's what I felt was missing from this was like the last dance was so compelling because you got to hear point of views from from people that you had no idea that they had certain opinions. And in this case, it was very much, you know, not only was it by the book in terms of exactly what you would expect Sosa and Maguire to say, it was also made by a Cardinals fan. So in the same way that The Last Dance was kind of Jordan propaganda, this was kind of Cardinals propaganda. Yeah. Um, and to that end, Ken, in terms of the one Black Lives Matter <laughs> sign in St. Louis, I'm sure you recall in our trip there last year that we saw multiple people Wearing a shirt that said, uh, I believe it was uh I stand for the flag, I kneel for Jesus.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's uh I'm I'm pretty sure you can get Tony LaRussa to sign all of those too.
1: Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just
1: <laughs> Tony LaRussa, every time I see him, I am I just continually impressed by how dour the man is. Like oh, yeah. he could be yeah, he he could be talking about the happiest thing on earth, and it just like darkens the room when his face shows up. <laughs>
2: he's got a real Pete Pete Rose hairdo, also. <laughs> yeah. I, have you ever seen his
0: Hall of Fame speech from a few years ago? No, no. It, literally the only Hall of Hall of Fame speech I've ever heard, where it feels like he is angry that he has to be up there and doing this. <laughs> yeah, like it's yeah, it, and it's not even like he's airing grievances. It, it just. The way he's delivering it, like even thanking people, he just feels feels like he he's just at almost like doing it at gunpoint. It's, it's right. very is strange. it like
2: a bill? It's like a Bill Belichick vibe a little bit.
0: Very much so. That's 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 a really good comp, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. someone who has won a lot and enjoyed, I don't know, maybe twenty three seconds of all
2: of it. <laughs> right. Well, one one um, thing that I'll say though that I I guess that I just kind of forgot because some of that footage I hadn't seen in a long time was like. That was my first year really actively watching baseball. So maybe I didn't realize how ridiculous it was. But in watching some of the highlights, some of the places that these balls are landing in stadiums that I'm very familiar with now don't even make sense. Like, there were clips that they show. There's one of Sosa hitting a ball about halfway into the upper deck in right field at Old Tiger Stadium. That doesn't seem possible on an opposite field shot. And then there's one he hits in Colorado, that clears the bleachers by a lot and hits, like, the back wall at Coors Field, which has, to be, that has to be a 500-foot home run in a game.
0: Yes. Yeah, that was, uh, I think, the longest home run in the history of Coors Field at that point, which was in 98 a short history, but nonetheless it was Colorado. Yeah. Right. Uh, and kind of jumping off that, too, the, the one thing, and this is something that I think I've talked to you guys about when we've, like, shared Sosa or even, like, Barry Bond's highlights in the past, is that I also can't unsee the bloat of late '90s baseball hitters like that when when you see like Maguire just filling out the uniform like that to, in a way that just looks in in retrospect you go that is not possible in nature. And <laughs> yeah, it's game bodies. Yeah, it's like it's not it's not a strict simulation. It's a cartoonish arcade <laughs> game. Yeah, it's, you, you look you look at the way his muscles fill out the uniform, and, and my, my first thought is. I feel really bad for your testicles, dude.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, they're they're feeling excluded from the attention right
2: now. <laughs> no, yeah to, yeah, to Kevin's point, it's like it's like if you were doing like a creative player in a baseball video game, and they just gave you all like extra attributes to add to everything mm-hmm. you wanted to.
0: Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and I found that my response to watching a lot of this documentary was kind of informed by what we're saying here because. The documentary essentially, as a lot of people have mentioned, is kind of an hour and a half highlight reel for most of it, where it's just, you know, home run after home run after home run from Big Mac and Sammy. And I found looking at it in, at the time in 98, uh, I was loving it. You know, I, I bought in completely like, like so many other people, it, because kind of what we talked about earlier with the strike, it was the first time since 94 where it just felt cool to be a baseball fan again. And that was such a neat feeling that year. But looking back on it from the perspective of 22 years later and knowing what we know now, I found like even watching the Cubs highlights, for the most part, all the Sosa highlights, a lot of it just left me cold. Like, I I, I remember enjoying this at the time. And I remember having that feeling of, oh, yeah, like when he hits when he hit 60 and 61, like I couldn't believe it. Uh, but just watching it now, um, I couldn't get. Emotionally wrapped up in it, and it was brought home to me actually at the very end of the documentary when it showed that short clip that starts with Rod Beck's arm slinging down mm-hmm. on the mound for the final out of that '98 wildcard playoff game, and that was the one moment where I felt that jolt of oh fuck yeah! Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like not only did I remember, but I was like actually identifying with the joy I felt in that moment because it was the Cubs winning the wild card and making the playoffs for the first time since 89. And I remember so much about the joy I had that night, but that was the only moment in the documentary that actually made me smile in present mm-hmm. day, which I, I found just kind of a, a very, I, I guess, telling reaction in terms of how much 98 means to me as a baseball fan in 2020. Now, I, I don't know. Do you kind of feel similar to that? I, I I'll, I'll let
1: Kevin answer. Okay. I, I mean, I enjoyed all the Sammy stuff, and I enjoyed wa- and watching him and like was struck even by the highlights the balls he was hitting, the pitches he was tracking like it wasn't just sheer brute strength I mean obviously it was a lot of that but uh but the guy was a much better hitter in general too then, and it was mm-hmm. interesting watching watching his approach and how many times he he went the opposite way to um but I but I think Sammy Sammy was fun that whole year. But I think m- the fact that McGuire ended up with the 70 and he broke 61 first, the home run story is more McGuire's because that was also all they had. For me, Sammy was not the thing I was most invested in that year as a Cubs fan. I was invested in the Cubs making the playoffs the first time since I was a real fan, really. So I think the Cubs had other magic in that year where the Cardinals did not. The Car- It was all Maguire, uh, and we had, you know, it's like obviously they covered that Harry had passed right before the beginning of the year, and there was just a bunch of weird things that happened that year uh, for, for the Cubs to win. You look at the roster, and it's weird that that's a playoff roster now, because I did, you know. So, um, but, yeah, I mean, I think the Sammy stuff did make me happy, but it was also like, Sammy's home run chase, even at the time and certainly now, was not the number one storyline for me and the team I watched.
2: Right. Well, but for, for me, it's actually the complete opposite uh, experience because I got into baseball because of the home run race. Like I And I was thinking June of 1998 might be the best calendar month as a Chicago sports fan ever to have hmm. the Bulls winning their final championship Mm -hmm. And Sosa hitting 20 home runs and just going completely insane. And it's starting to become clear that the Cubs do not suck that year. (laughs) But in looking back, it made me, I kind of, I I resonate with both of what you're saying. Um, Because looking back now, it makes me feel a little gross that that's my origin story. It's almost, it's, it's the same as, because like my, I was Sosa first and Cubs second. Like, I remember watching games. I have a specific memory from the infamous Brant Brown dropped ball game where I remember having a thought when he dropped that ball when for a split second I thought the Brewers might tie it and it would go into extras, that I was okay with it because it meant Sosa would get another at-bat. That's how invested I was in that home run race. Hmm. And now looking back and realizing that that's why I, I began my affair, love affair with the Cubs, it's a little bit like... <laughs> Like I feel like I got into it for the wrong reasons and then figured it out. Like it would be like if you started dating somebody because the sex was great and then later found out they were a great person and you loved them, <laughs> you would still be it like, yeah, but I don't know work. that. I... Yeah, it can still work. It can definitely still work.
1: It's the, yeah, um, it's, just a, it's just a it's a unique story. It's like, well, we <laughs> yeah we blacked out, fucked, and it was fun, <laughs> and now we're in love and this is our
0: kids. You know, it's like all exactly. right, that's still
2: that's still fun. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely. I felt more nostalgic about it in a positive way because I was remembering all these moments from first falling in love with baseball. Yeah, and and to right. be clear,
0: and and I, I feel bad honestly. I don't want to make you feel gross for feeling nostalgic for that moment <laughs> or feeling that that was what got you into baseball. Because I mean, it got you into baseball, and that above all else, as we talked about for the first half hour should be the object of being in baseball regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and I, I feel like I want to like try to walk a fine line with my feelings about it because I'm, I'm discussing my honest feelings in terms of this. I, I just do not have that emotional connection to it. But I don't want to make feel people who do have that emotional connection feel badly about it because uh, it, it's baseball. It, it should be fun regardless of what we find out about later what was really going on. I, I think that if I were your age, I would probably have much the same reaction. If that was my first real baseball memories, it just so happens that, uh, because of my age that I, I was, you know, I'd already established my, my Mm -hmm. my baseball already had its hooks in me. And, and I was a Sandberg guy. I was a Dawson guy. I was a Dunstan guy because those were the guys from, uh, when I was seven years old, uh, as, as you were in 98.
2: Well, yeah. And I think, I think for me, it was like, um, I fell in love really fast. Like I went from, at the beginning of 1998, I would say I had watched, I don't even know if I had ever sat down and watched a full baseball game. I was completely uninterested in it. And by the end of that 1998 season, I watched every single game that I could, every game that was on you know, WGN Superstation. I remember checking the box score frantically the next day. Like I went from quite literally having zero interest in it to being obsessed with it, and looking back now, and I hadn't really considered this, it was almost perfect because that was the end of my obsession with the Bulls in terms of it really being worth something to be obsessed about and immediately right. went into a, a obsession with the Cubs that in my mind has far exceeded my, my love of the Bulls. But one thing that I thought was really interesting um, – and you mentioned this, Ken, before talk, talking about the, the one-game playoff against the Giants. So that was game 163, which obviously would have, you know, it did count as a regular season game. And they mentioned in the documentary, and baseball fans know that Maris, obviously, you know, people didn't think it was legitimate because he played extra games. Imagine a scenario where Sosa <laughs> had six, 69 home runs going into game 163 and hits two home runs and ends with 71. How mm-hmm. big of a deal that would have been? Oh, God, yeah.
0: And uh, I mean, just imagine the hate emanating from St. Louis in our direction, if that were the case. That uh, And especially because, as as Kevin mentioned earlier, that McGuire was the anointed one going into mm-hmm. that season, that, that everyone thought, yes, this is going to be the guy that finally takes it. And I wonder if Sammy had, especially if he had used 163 to pass him, if that might have kind of been, the first time people would have turned on him as opposed to what happened a, a couple of years later, if he would have mm-hmm. been viewed as some kind of usurper in that moment, almost. That, that's right. fascinating.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, it seemed like in, in watching it back that, that the St. Louis fans, <laughs> it's like the St. Louis fans were on board with supporting him as long as he finished second.
0: Do you know what right. I mean? Yeah. Like oh, yeah. it, <laughs> right.
2: it definitely would have shifted. And there's, there's one moment where somebody holds up a sign that says, uh, Something to the effect of like, you know, Maguire doesn't need Wrigley to hit sixty-two, and it's like, yeah, fuck you. That's exactly mm-hmm. what I would expect a Cardinals fan to say. It's also just yeah. a,
1: it's just a hack uh, opinion about Wrigley that comes from a long time ago, where uh, not realizing how often the park plays as a pitcher's park too. Mm-hmm. It's just like, right.
0: goofy, yeah, yeah. But that that brings up kind of an interesting point to me too. That that also popped in my head as I was watching the Maguire segments is that one of the things that made what he was doing at that time so extraordinary is he was the first guy, like maybe in the history of the second incarnation of Bush stadium to ever hit home runs, uh, like even regularly, because throughout my entire childhood from the eighties till about the mid nineties, Bush stadium was far and away the hardest park to hit any home runs. Like the Cardinals as a team would have years where they would have like maybe 39 or 40 home runs total in their home ballpark, Uh, partly because it's the way they design their team. But also, I just remember when the Cubs would go down to play there in like the late 80s, you would assume that, okay, home runs, we might see one or two today if Sandberg or Dawson get into one, but you'll be lucky otherwise. So that's, Mm -hmm. I think, one of the things that uh, was fascinating at the time and also at the time should have clued us in as, oh, something else is going on here because Mm -hmm, Dwyer is doing these insane things at this ridiculously deep, deep uh, a ballpark with these deep cavern wall, cavernous walls. Um, um, and um, I, th- I think also in terms of um, kind of what, what Adam talked about uh, in terms of watching Sammy and kind of casually starting at first and then by the end wrapped up into every single game. It also felt like that that was kind of the entire country that year too. Mm-hmm. And I remember again, as, as a baseball fan who, again for the first time in four or five years it was cool to be a baseball fan and you felt like you didn't have to explain why you were a baseball fan to other people just loving that sense of going down into, into like september and october of 98 and i remember uh it was my sophomore year in college going to on a road trip to pittsburgh to see the cubs play the pirates in early september uh and it was a Pirates team that, it was a Pirates team in the late 90s. So they were, like <laughs> bad, say, <laughs> 500 games out of it at that point. <laughs> yeah. And they drew, I think, 30, 35,000 people to Three River Stadium that night. And I remember just this, not just this incredible sense that, oh my God, this is an almost full ballpark for a shit Pirates team. But I remember giving standing ovations to Sammy Sosa in each of that's on the road. And then I think it was the fifth inning of that game. He hit number 58 to right field and just the entire ballpark just lost it. And everyone just went nuts and it's, called him out. Yeah. For a curtain.
2: And that it, it was, was um, that was really jarring to me is, is seeing how often that happened because obviously Steve Draxel talks about how he wasn't particularly happy with Sosa coming in and congratulating Maguire. But even in those clips of uh, McGuire hitting those last few home runs in, in 98, you're seeing the expos players like shake his hand and high five him as he's coming around first base, and I guess you could look at that as being like sportsmanlike. But in terms of the the fan reaction, and they showed those games in uh, at Pro Player Stadium in Miami that are packed in September just to see McGuire. Um, the idea of taking a curtain call on the road, the only thing I can even think of that's comparable is like when Jordan first came back with the Bulls, and you have. Crowds that feel like it's a home game for the Bulls, because mm-hmm. that's how invested people are to see this one person.
0: Yeah, it, it felt like, uh, honestly, in the moment, my memory of it is that it felt like people were stepping outside the, their rooting interests just to celebrate baseball in that particular moment. And yeah. again, it felt so good to be a part of that in, in that time, just 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 to enjoy baseball again. Uh, it, it was almost like an, a, an unburdening as a baseball fan. And it, it's really a shame that, that we look back at it now, and and I look back at it so coldly. But uh, but yeah, I mean, when you when you were living it, uh, it was it was a celebration of the game, and, and uh, yeah, you don't obviously don't get a chance to see it that often.
1: Yeah, the I mean, I think the Jordan comparison's great there because like it's hard to think about anyone in any sport that would go around and basically sell out every town they went to, and uh, and that year, and that, that's exactly what they were that year and it is super weird to see all the other team congratulating on the field stuff it's awkward but i but it's like i one thing i i got from this watching it was like i feel like mark McGuire's a pretty nice guy uh i feel like i feel he seems like a naturally awkward person like a naturally kind of quieter and awkward person who means well who uh who obviously took a bunch of steroids and stuff and admits <laughs> that now yeah but I think he just got caught up in it too, where it's like, I don't know, are we supposed to be shaking hands? And like, Mm -hmm. and I think Sammy too, like, you know, Sammy enjoyed putting on a show. He enjoyed the showman Mm -hmm. part of it. So it's, it is weird and I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again, competitor to competitor on the field. But I think it's just like everyone, everyone was awkward and didn't know what to do. And it it Uh felt new and weird. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was a strange, it was a strange thing to see.
2: I think uh, are are we supposed to be shaking hands is a, is a big mood for 2020.
0: It, it, it's a whole
2: mood. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, yes. uh, do you have memories of, I mean, I, I assume you do, uh, but did, did either of you attend games in person where Sammy hit a, hit a home run that year? Yeah,
1: I, uh, I I went to a game, I went to a couple, but the main one I remember is I was there when he hit 50 and 51. That was definitely the first Cub who'd hit 50 in my lifetime, and uh, I remember thinking that was really cool, Uh, and it was against the Astros, and I knew the Cubs lost, but I looked it up before coming on uh, the podcast here because I was curious. They lost like 13-3, to so, (laughs) like, I mean, there's nothing more late 90s Cubs than... Sosa hitting two bombs and the Cubs score three runs. I'm going to and assume get,
2: they were both off of uh, Jose Lima, right? They were both off Jose Lima. Of RIP. Right.
1: Uh, and, as, yeah. And Sosa hit 66 off Lima too, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, yeah, he had two off Lima. And it was also a game where Steve Traxel had a bug up his ass because the Blue Angels buzzed the field. Oh, uh, God, I remember that. Yeah. And, and they, and he like, and they called a no pitch on what would have been a strike, and then he ended up giving up a big inning. So it, weirdly, it was a good match for this documentary because it was Steve Traxel being pissed about stuff and losing, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, and it was Sammy Sosa hitting a bunch of bombs.
2: Yeah, I for me, so I never in 1998 I had still never been to a professional baseball game. Um, hmm. I my first baseball game was in, I think. 99 or 2000 at Yankee stadium. And I never even went to in the time that I lived in Illinois, I never went to Wrigley. Um, But as I've alluded to on several podcasts, I did go to a Kane County Cougars game. So you always have that. Um, So I did not, I did not go to any games in 98. Um, Obviously I have a lot of memories from that year, more just, you know, like I said, falling in love with the team and and watching them on uh, WGN superstation. Thank God for that. But Mm -hmm. um, to, to, to Kevin's point, I kind of feel the same way. And I, I, I messaged you guys that they were replaying a 2018 uh, E60 special on Sammy Sosa. I, I hate to say it because I do, I do love the guy, but Mark McGuire seems like a better person than Sammy Sosa. Like Sammy Sosa seems like a dick. And the way that he spoke, you see it a little bit in this documentary, but if you go back and watch the one with Jeremy Shap. He's really defensive and really rude. And the way he says, my friend, the, the subtext is I'm going to beat you up or mm-hmm. I, I, I would punch you in the face if there weren't cameras here. Yes. And I don't, I don't <laughs> to be clear, I'm not supporting the ricket saying, well, you have to apologize for something to come back to Wrigley. But it wouldn't, I, I don't think it would kill Sosa to have some degree of contrition or just any honesty. It's like, we all know, that you were a part of it and no one's saying that you were the only one who was. And it's also probably not fair that you take the brunt of, you know, people talking shit about that era, but just talk about it. Honestly, it's been 22 years. It would be, it would be, it
1: would be nice if he did. Uh, I do think, I I do think he is sometimes treated like he is more of a problem than, uh, than everyone else. And the closest he, he's come to honesty about it, I guess, was in this documentary when he said, like, why are they asking me to apologize when everyone was doing it? That's the closest he's come to admitting it. It would be nice to be admitted. It. I think Sammy Sosa is fully crazy. I know that's not a uh, PC thing to say. I think he's fucking nuts. Uh, I think that I think he's more nuts than he is a dick. You know, he's gone.
2: He is physically. weird. There's like a weird yeah. he sounds- there's something odd about him. Well, oh, yeah.
1: he's, he's gone physically Michael Jackson, like, you know, obviously like skin wise, he has the eyeliner stuff going on. That's strange, which, and I'm not like commenting on style choices. It, it's a very specific kind of nuts that, you know, mm-hmm. that it seems like Michael Jackson went and then the paintings of him and his family behind him <laughs> is just true. Straight. I think he's eccentric at least, I think more than he is an asshole. Um, and I, I think, Part of that, there's, you know, we don't have enough time on the podcast to go into why all that is, but the guy literally came from being dirt poor to being one of the most famous people on earth and that can't not fuck with your brain, too. And Maguire didn't have a, re- Maguire was a comfortable kid growing up and, you know, uh, and I think had an easier time of it. And it's been treated more kindly than Sammy Sosa, too. Um, so, yeah, I think it would be nice. It would be nice just for him, to, I think, if you could be a little more honest about it. But yeah. I'm on board with he. He shouldn't have to apologize about anything ever to come back and throw out a first pitch, anything he fucking wants to at Wrigley Field. He made everyone a lot of money for a mm-hmm. long time. The Ricketts, who the fuck were they when he <laughs> was drawing people to Wrigley Field? They, they were just inheriting money, inheriting money from their father, who then them to buy a team after Sosa had left the team. And like they have some sort of moral ground where it's like, uh, so to so apologize to who? Who the fuck are you? You're a fan with money. And that, that after he was no longer affiliated with the team. Uh, so I am fully on board. Like that makes me want him to never
0: apologize <laughs> and to come back because they demand it like that. I find it disgusting. Yeah. If you're looking to the Ricketts to legislate morality, that's, that's oh my just. my Board.
1: <laughs> yes as, i mean we as we tweeted at away games pod if you want to follow adam and my podcast on twitter which is a weird thing i'm a guy who drinks a lot and adam and i both tweet from the same account so there are days where i'll look at the twitter account and be like did i say this no that's okay but <laughs> that, uh that,
2: <laughs> that's yeah and it's adam. really awkward because one of us will tweet black lives matter and the other will tweet all lives matter and it's a whole thing we go back and forth. <laughs> yeah it's really yeah i know i keep i keep trying to get through to adam come on uh <laughs> the embrace debates. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yes, exactly. (laughs) But, I mean, if they want Sammy Sosa to to apologize for what he did from 98 to 03, 04 to 04, I guess, whatever, uh, that's cool. You should see what the Ricketts have done in 2019 and 2020. If you're talking about things to apologize for, the Ricketts have a hand in canceling a baseball season, it appears like. They were throwing fundraisers for Donald Trump at Wrigley in 2019. Get fucked forever, Mm -hmm. uh, all the Ricketts telling sammy sosa to apologize god eat a dick choke on (laughs) it i feed my time
0: (laughs) (laughs) mike drop perfect yeah Uh, yeah. i want to see joe ricketts just forward an email that says i'm sorry once like yes (laughs) so looking at sammy now uh honestly i i just feel kind of bad for him yes like yeah. He's, he's definitely caught up in this whatever weird, narcissistic world he's created for himself. But I I, I see someone who doth protest too much that mm-hmm. he's living a good life and that he doesn't need the Cubs. That I think, especially since it's been, geez, 16 years almost at this point now, where he's been forcibly mm-hmm. separated from the team that that's where he starred for so many years and where he established so many connections. He seems like someone who really needs that adulation from his public to, to just kind of, that that's a part of him and yeah. that's been taken away for over a decade and a half at this point.
2: I think that's a, it's very, very well said. And I think um, you can tell, you can tell that he's deeply hurt by it. And yeah. every, every time he says, Oh, I don't care, you know, whether it's about the Cubs, whether it's about Cooperstown and he has this kind of very, you know, flippant attitude of like, you know, I know who I am and my life is great. And I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think that has contributed to what appears to be some degree of instability emotionally from him that you see in interviews now is that you look at how emotional McGuire was giving that speech um when he's inducted into the Cardinals hall of fame. And you get the impression that it would mean a, a lot to Sosa and, and, I'm sorry, but if I, regardless of what he did, regardless of how his career ended with the Cubs, if I'm Sammy Sosa and I have to hit number 600 in a Rangers uniform off of somebody wearing my fucking number, uh-huh. and then I have to watch Junior Lake wear that number and all sorts yeah. of assholes, I am absolutely livid. It's so, it's yeah. wrong. It's just mm-hmm. wrong. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, what he did, he did. We're talking, it's, it's 600 homers is 600 homers. That, you know, I mean... uh, yeah, it's and it is weird to see him not embraced by the Cubs. Where I don't think there's any question that, and I don't, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to slag Barry Bonds either. But if we're talking about assholes and people who Slag-like. are assholes, people, I mean, Bonds is dominating that, and he's embraced by San Francisco and the Giants. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's a really weird standard that Sosa's been held to, and I think. Um, And I think to what Ken was saying about the protesting too much about his life being good and all that, I think that's totally right. And I, and it also makes me sad because like how good he would be at being an ambassador for the Cubs. And even, (laughs) of course, there's a ton of ego in that he loves people celebrating Sammy, but it also makes other people feel good and he's fun about doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think he'd be so great at that now. And he, you know, you saw even in the little, like, press conferences together it's just like he's he has a fun silly time and that's all you need out of a player especially in their in their post-retirement life and so I'm hope I'm hopeful it seems like maybe there's been moves getting him closer to that lately because uh I would love to have him around
0: yeah I, I you know as I've said several times throughout this podcast I I am not a social guy he is he is not my connection to the Cubs of my youth I I Wants the Cubs to welcome him back just because I I want to see him get a win at this point. Mm-hmm. I, I think, yeah, I, just as, from a human standpoint, I, I think he needs a win and I'd like, like to see that. So, um, yeah. so do you guys, uh, while well, we got time left, anything else to plug? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned your Twitter earlier, it's, uh, and you were talking to Taylor Davis this week too on
2: your pod. We did. I want to just real quick jump in with a couple, a couple quick, quick final comments. One is, uh, in hearing kevin talk about the rickets and just our our discussion of the owners i do hope that within the next week we have a uh, a black and white video of all of the owners saying i take responsibility <laughs> <laughs> i don't think yeah. it'll happen but it would be great uh-huh. um i have one sure. other it's, random note it's
1: just useless enough for them to maybe
2: do exactly it, so. or, or singing yeah. or singing imagine whatever they're more comfortable <laughs> um but i i have one other completely random thought uh, about the documentary and he they only showed him like once in the documentary but if i'm not overstepping as a straight man on, on this Outsports podcast cory patterson my god what an attractive man holy oh shit he yeah. was like a male model yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> that, that was my exact reaction like the the
2: close-up of cory patterson and my first <laughs> response holy shit he hasn't <laughs> aged he's probably yeah. better looking now than he was 20 years ago unbelievable
0: yeah, and the beard works for him. It, oh, it, it works! Totally works for him. Like uh, he had kind of the baby face as a player, but man, yeah. Oh, in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Good for, good for him. I
1: was always a, I was always a Corey Patterson guy. He was oh, a yeah. great <laughs> hope that uh, that that yeah that
0: I rooted so, for. Uh, yeah, happened. on behalf of Outsports and Outsports listeners everywhere. ESPN, where is the Corey Patterson 30 for 30 <laughs> Put him in the goddamn body issue.
2: <laughs> yeah, what body if, issue what sure. if I told you that a man that good looking was also good at baseball? Um, <laughs> on to answer note, your question, no. to answer your question of what what we have to plug, I'll let Kevin speak for himself. But in terms of things that we're collectively plugging, yeah, just follow uh, away games pod, uh, away games at away games pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we can be emailed at away games at gmail.com. We're now up to six player interviews uh, we just did a draft special and uh, it appears that uh, the loss of baseball is our gain for baseball interviews. So I guess that's a silver lining. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. That's it. And then follow, uh, you can follow Adam and I personally too. I'm at Kevin McCaff. He's at Adam Mama Walla, you know, so you can find us there on uh, Twitter and Instagram, whatever. Yeah.
0: And uh, if I might be so bold as to say the uh, Rob, this Rob's this Disney interview you guys did, was maybe the most fun interview I've heard anybody do this year
1: thanks man thank you rob was was so great go follow rob too. find him yes
2: yes he is a delight Uh, and now now his dog is modeling so good for him (laughs) yeah yeah and
0: uh as have you guys been a total delight yet again kevin and adam thanks for joining me thanks guys